Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Laura, and welcome to Where Work Meets Life. Today, I'm really excited to bring an episode on the seismic shifts in leadership with Dr. Michelle Johnston. She's a management professor, an executive coach, and a leadership expert. I was introduced to her through a mutual connection, and I'll tell you a few things about Michelle. She's the Gaston Chair of Business at Loyola University in New Orleans. She recently published an excellent book called The Seismic Shift in Leadership, How to Thrive in a New Era of Connection, which became an Amazon bestseller. She was named one of the most influential New Orleanians, a top 500 business leader, and a woman of the year by City Business. Wow, what a lot of great accomplishments. She's a keynote speaker like I am. She speaks around the nation and the world. She received her PhD in communication from Louisiana State University and was named to the 100 most prestigious coaches group, which consists of top executive coaches worldwide. She lives in her beloved New Orleans, which is on my bucket list in Louisiana with her daughter, Elizabeth. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for having me on your show. And hello to all the listeners out there. I'm really looking forward to our conversation together. Wonderful. So Michelle, tell us what inspired you to write The Seismic Shift in Leadership. You know, I have a funny story. I was at a, a birthday party, a surprise birthday party Saturday night. And it's the only student, I've been a professor for over 25 years, and it's the only student who I ever taught who became my friend. And she just turned 40. And um, so she had a bunch of her best friends at the surprise party. And I taught all of them. So they were sitting around telling really funny stories about me when I was a young professor. And they were saying how they were terrified of me. And I would make them get up and deliver these presentations. And they felt really good about themselves. You know how terrifying it is to get up and deliver a presentation. And way back then, I had a whole lot to prove. And, and I had been trained by very almost military-like drill sergeants of some of my colleagues. And so after they would finish their presentations, I would say, okay, you did a good job, but you had three ums and five likes, and you moved your hair in this direction. Of course, I don't remember it like that, but they were all howling saying I, I helped them become great public speakers, but that it was terrifying how I really called them out in front of everybody. And so it started me thinking that so much of my book, which is The Seismic Shift, is about kind of that command and control, that culture of fear, that is out and no longer effective. And, and when they were telling these stories, I realized like, I haven't, I haven't done anything like that in over a decade. However, that was very much how I was trained. And I think that there are a lot of bosses out there who are just leading in a way that that's how they were mentored and trained, and it's just not working anymore. And so that's why I wrote the book. I was on the front lines in you know business classrooms teaching, and I was an executive coach. And so on the front lines, seeing leaders who had subscribed to what had been effective for so long, kind of that authoritarian style. And, and, and they were just so shocked that all of a sudden it was no longer effective. And so I really felt like, oh my gosh, I have to get the word out and save more people because I felt fortunate to have the opportunity to have my seismic shift and I wanted to help others do the same. 
Wonderful. What a great story. And that's what I appreciated in your book is how you really opened up about your own vulnerability, your own authentic self. And I think that is really appreciated by your readers, Michelle. Laura, thank you so much for saying that because I can't tell you how many nights I was up thinking, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Because academics, we're not trained to talk about ourselves. We're trained research science, social scientists. And I was, and I, yet I knew that in order, I, I just had this gut feeling like if I just exposed myself and said, Hey, I, this is not connection is not a natural gift of mine. Like I've had to, I've had my own struggles. I've had to learn about it. Here's how I stumbled but yet I got back up and I figured it out. I just wanted to inspire people. And I felt like the only way to do that is to really put my stuff out there too. You did a great job of it. And I really resonate with you. Command and control needs to go the way of the dodo bird. Uh, but people have a really hard time letting go of it. But I'm curious, Michelle, what's the opposite of command and control leadership? It is all about connection. And I learned so much from Brene Brown's work. Um, I remembering when I was, was really trying to figure out how I needed to shift in the classroom. My dean at the time was named Pat O'Brien. And if anybody has been to New Orleans, they know that Pat O'Brien's is our famous, famous bar. And I loved it that the professor, the dean of our business school was named Pat O'Brien. So he brings me into his office. He was very intimidating. I do think he was a military guy. And he showed me my faculty evaluations. He said, these are below average. He goes, and I hired you and I know you're not below average. What's going on? I said, I don't know. I'm doing what everybody's telling me to do. He's like, well, what is everybody telling you to do? I was like, well, I have this, this team of mentors and they say just to go in and lock the door and nobody's allowed in late. And if you come in late, you kick them out, you know, and you write all over their papers and circle with red and tell, you know, like some of them even would write on papers, stupid. <laughs> And, and if, if the class is two and a half hours, you lecture for three and you wear them out. I mean, that was the philosophy back then. And I wanted to succeed. And so even the dean back then didn't think that that was necessarily a negative or bad. He just said, huh. He said, okay, well, they their faculty evaluations are above average, but yours weren't. So I'll do whatever it takes. I, I believe in you. I'll invest in you, but you need to figure it out. And so that's when I discovered Brene Brown and her research. And I remember reading the book, The Gifts of Imperfection. And so I was holding on to this, this desire to be perfect and, and feeling like you had to put your perfect self out there. And, and I would even tell my students, don't ever let them see you sweat. Don't ever admit mistakes. Don't give up your power. I mean, I was all about that. And the more I read and, and really learned from Brene Brown's research, the more I realized that perfection equals disconnection. So I had this, this armor, as she called it, this wall, this mask up every time I walked into the classroom and I wasn't connecting with my students because I was just directing. And that's when I realized that connection was key. And I wanted to explore more about connecting. And, and that's what the seismic shift in leadership is about, is the new leader today who is truly effective, has an ability to meaningfully connect with their teams and to inspire them and to motivate. 
But first, Laura, you have to step back and make sure you're connected with yourself. And that's what I had wrong. I wasn't connected with myself enough and comfortable enough in my own skin to actually lean in with my gifts, my strengths, with my authenticity. So the more I was trying to be like somebody else, the more it was not working for me. So those mentors of mine who would walk in like military drill sergeants and would get faculty of the member of the year, it's because they were actually being themselves. <laughs> they were military drill sergeants. I was not. And that was the problem. Yes. And I think uh, connection is so powerful. That's what develops trust, loyalty, um, empathy is a part of it, right? What other elements are there to connecting both with ourselves and connecting with our teams, which I know is the second section of your book? Yeah. So the first part, um, in order to really connect with your teams, you have to make sure that you're showing up authentically. And so you do have to spend a lot of time knowing and owning your story. So I was just working with an executive and his team on a day retreat. And I'm really advocating now, as I know you are, that we have got, no matter if you're totally a remote workforce, a company, we've got to find ways to be in person at least once a quarter. And so we had an offsite together and, and we did the exercise of, of own your journey, own your leadership journey. So tell us about, um, a, a leadership, um, event in your life that really affected you and how you lead. It could be a good boss. It could be a bad boss. It could be a time when you failed. And, and just going through that exercise together as a team, that's what actually builds team trust. Because once you know somebody's story, then you're, you're less likely to assume the worst. I'll give you an example. I was on the presidential search committee for Loyola's new president, and we would be on eight-hour Zooms day after day trying to vet all these candidates. And there was one very high-powered leader in our community on the Zoom this, this very particular day that was super important. And she had her camera off and was on mute, and we did not hear for her from her for eight hours. And I remember thinking, and I know better, Laura, we know better, but I assumed the worst. I was like, oh, cocky son of a gun. Really? Too good, right? Too big? Like, you, you can't be contributing to this meeting? And after the, the very end of the meeting, she didn't turn her camera on, but she unmuted her mic, and she said, I am so sorry, y'all. I have been so sick, but I have been, like, drifting in and out of sleep, but trying to, to listen, and I just want to give you my remarks. Marks. Now, if she had said that in the very beginning, if she had owned her story and, and, and owned her situation, like, hey, guys, I just want, even in the chat, just want you to know I am sick, but I am listening as much as I can because this is important to me, then we would not assume the worst. But human beings assume the worst. It's just what we do when we're not given any any other evidence. So, so one of the things that you do is you need to own your story and share with people where you're from, how you were raised, what really impacted you as a leader, what your background is, so that we don't make false conclusions, false assumptions, and assume the worst. So that to me is true connection with yourself. So once I started really diving into Brene Brown's research, then I would have all of my MBA students own their stories during the first week of class and share them with each other. And I will never forget, there was a student named Juan from Honduras, and he stood up and it was a large stadium style classroom with a stage. 
And it, this is the first week of class. So there wasn't trust. There wasn't psychological safety. The, the students didn't know each other. But I just believed so much in this research, right? I have to get them to connect with themselves so that we can feel comfortable um, as a class and, and really trust each other. So he stands up and he said, I'm one from Honduras. And he said, what I'm going to share with you today affected me significantly. And it's something that I have told very few people. He said, uh, we, came, we came from a very uh, poor village in Honduras. And he said, that's not notable. Uh, Honduras is a poor country. And he said, and my family didn't make a lot of money. Well, not a lot of families did. He said, so when my grandfather died, my grandmother moved in with us. But that also is not notable. What's notable, which was really embarrassing to me, is that we didn't have room for her. So she and I had to share a bed during my high school years. And I was so ashamed and so embarrassed. I didn't tell anybody but my close friends. He said, but I'm standing here in front of you today as a brand new MBA student at Loyola University, New Orleans. So honored to have had that experience because my grandma just died. And I, I would not trade those years for anything. And she impacted the way I want to lead. That story, I still get chills just sharing that story because that's when you realize you could see him when, when he was telling the story, he grew more confident. He, you could just tell he just was more comfortable in his skin. And then all of a sudden we, we debriefed it afterwards, Laura, and the students were like, I want him on my team. I trust him. That's a good person, right? And so you really and, and so as I'm watching this, I realize I had not owned my story. So here I am really diving into the research about belonging, about connection, about perfection, and 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 re and then having my students own their stories, but yet I still was struggling and realized that because I had grown up every two years as a corporate brat, we call it like a military brat. So every two years we moved around that I just didn't even own my story. When people asked me where I was from, I was like, oh, where are you from? Because I probably live there, except for you, Laura. I never lived in Canada, but <laughs> but close. I lived in Detroit and in, in where we lived, Rochester Hills was like north of parts of Canada. In any case, I, I then had to do some real soul searching and own my story. And once I owned my story and I understood who I was and really accepted my strengths, my blind spots, all of a sudden I went in and I was a very different leader. I was authentic. I was real. I was genuine. I wasn't putting on an act. I wasn't trying to be a military drill sergeant. I was finally comfortable in my own skin. And once I was comfortable in my own skin, then I connected with the students and then I got faculty member of the year. But it wasn't until all those things fell into place. Beautiful. And thank you for sharing that with our guests, Michelle. I couldn't agree more. And my podcast is on the intersection of work and life because I, I believe we're all human beings who happen to be working. And I think we lose sight of that. So your book does a great job of, of opening us up to the power of owning our story and connecting genuinely with others. But something I'm noticing, well, I've noticed for the last 20 years, and it's not getting any better, is that there's a lot of what I call bad bosses out there. Um, your book explores very uplifting, lots of case studies of exceptional leaders. And it gets, you know, in different industries and in different types of organizations, you, you have the cases and words and quotes of some great leaders. Uh, what I want to know is the, the opposite of, of that in your mind. How, what advice do you have for organizations to deal with 
problematic leaders? Well, I really believe that coaching works. I just got off of a call <clears throat> with an executive um, with the Saints organization, as a matter of fact, the New Orleans Saints. And, and I'm, I'm pitching to, to do some leadership development with the organization. He said, you know, Michelle, he said, our basketball operation for each NBA player, they're also the New Orleans Pelicans and NBA team. He goes, so for each basketball player, they have three coaches three different coaches who work on all of their different skills and how to bring out the best in them. He said, it occurred to me, why don't we have that for our business leaders? We know how to do it with athletes. We're just coming, coming off of the U.S. Open and Coco and 19 years old. And, and what a great, great story, success story. And, and she's had coaches her whole life, right? So the way to really understand your strengths and, and, and be the best you can be, I believe, is by enlisting a coach. So for all of those jerk bosses out there, and there are plenty, I have great empathy for them because I think that there were parts of, of my leadership that I was probably a little bit jerky, not, not knowing that I was a jerk boss, just that's how I, I was told to do it, right? And so a lot of times you've got to have those performance appraisals. You have to have those honest conversations with your people and your organization to say, you know what? The feedback has come in and you've created inadvertently. We don't think that you're doing maliciously. I hope not or intentionally, but you've created a culture of fear and your, your people don't trust you. They don't feel like they can take risks and speak up. And that's not the organization we want to be. So we believe in you and we're going to invest some money in you and we're going to give you a chance to work with a leadership coach. And then once you do that, then that leader has a 360 feedback report. And it's usually when a leader sees in writing how the most important people in the company perceive their leadership, which is not always great. That typically is the impetus for change. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I'm with you. I think there is a lot of room and hope to develop those problematic behaviors that often are not the intention. It's a gap between the impact and the intent that the person has. So I think, though, another thing that you talk about in your book is owning your communication style. And we're all different in terms of how we communicate our levels of uh, you know, introversion, extroversion, for example. I've noticed a gap, though, when it comes to active listening, which you do allude to in your book. What thoughts do you have on leaders who do way more talking than listening? And is this gap possible to address? Oh, my goodness. I just finished a 360 report, and that was the main theme in the entire report was this woman is so gifted, has so many strengths, and, and Marshall Goldsmith wrote a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, right? And so her strengths got her here and she wants to get at a higher level. And in order to get there, she has to stop talking and start listening, that she walks into the room and immediately takes over and thinks that her job is to just talk and direct, talk and direct and not listen. And, and so... The person who taught me most about this is Pete November, and he's in the book. At the time, he was the chief financial officer of Auctioner, which is a client of mine. It's a healthcare system. And now he's the chief, um, he's the CEO, chief executive officer. And, and he really turned the 80-20 rule around right, below, right before my eyes. He's the only leader 
and I loved it and I felt so grateful is he would invite me to all of his big executive meetings. And I would typically be the one to begin the meeting with some sort of connection question. I don't call them icebreakers. I say, okay, let's begin with the question, just something personally to kind of add some levity, but also to get to know each other better. And I'll never forget before Thanksgiving, one of these meetings, it was the week before Thanksgiving. And Pete, uh, I said, Pete, what, what qu- connection question do you want to ask? He goes, I want to know their favorite Thanksgiving meals. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, I want to no, do you put the marshmallows on top of the sweet potatoes? I was like, okay. And and I'll never forget that meeting because it just made everybody so real and brought their family traditions out. And that's how we, we began each of his executive meetings. And let my let me remind you, he's the chief financial officer. So he would have these meetings only once a month. They were an hour and a half, and we would spend at least 15 minutes going around asking personal questions. He's the one that truly modeled the way and taught me that you can run a meeting asking more questions about your people, and they can be personal, not always professional, and flip the 80-20 around so that 80% of the time he was listening, and at the very end, 20% he was directing. So he flip-flopped that, and I, I really believe that that's one of the reasons why he catapulted to the top is he was just beloved. People would would stop me. That was before the pandemic would stop me if they would see me in the hospital and say, hey, can you get me somehow, some way transferred so I can work for Pete November? That is is just so, so beautiful just to, to hear that that story. And again, I think your book is packed full of these inspirational relatable type stories. They're all human beings in your book. They just happen to have the gift of being in leadership roles. That is exactly right. So I also, I wanted to share stories of connection and disconnection, right? And people did ask me because I do have some leaders in there that might at one time have been more of the command and control, but have learned and were able to pivot. And I had people say, so are all the leaders in your book, do they model connection? I was like, no, because I mean, we all have struggled. Did we all, you know, maybe some are like they came out of the womb, beautiful connectors, but you have to imagine that that's not really what was rewarded for a long time in organizations, right? So many of these leaders stumbled and it's the ones who can admit it and to say, man, I got it wrong. As a matter of fact, Pete November is one of them. He stood up. There was a um, uh, acquisition, and 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 he told this this acquisition that nothing would change, and everything changed for them. And he went back and and he told them because I realize we messed up, and I am so sorry. We told you nothing would change, and your whole world is changing, and and we're going to figure it out together. But I just want you to know, I'm really sorry, and I hear you. It's 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 times like that when you can say, "Man, I I got that wrong, but I'm owning it, and now we can figure it out together." That's what builds trust. That is meaningful connection. I've I I tried to figure out what exactly I I, I came up with an assessment last Christmas for all the leaders that I was last holiday season for all the leaders that I was coaching because I wanted to know if my work with these leaders on connection has made a difference. And so we sent out this assessment. It was just on five attributes. And I wanted to know whether their people were seen, heard, valued, respected, and appreciated by their leaders. And what's really interesting, Laura, is I did this and the leaders with the top scores I, I I was very aware that they were very good at connection. The leaders with eh, scores, 
there ended up being um, a series of layoffs later that I had no idea was coming down the pike. And a lot of those leaders who, who didn't have the high scores on connection were the ones who were let go. And, and I can't publish that, obviously, but, but I noticed it, right? It's the leaders who really, in, in times when organizations struggle, whether it's financially, whether you have to go through layoffs, whether it's the economy, whatever it is, it's the leaders who really show their people, I see you, I hear you, I respect you, I value, I appreciate you. Man, you hold on to those people. But it's those leaders who just didn't have that connection with their people. Man, much easier. What a powerful example. And I, we're going to pull out such great quotes from you, Michelle. <laughs> I just, uh, I'm hearing such great quotes. So thank you. One of the, the questions I have, I know connection is very important. I've been a researcher and thought leader around hybrid and remote leadership for almost two decades. I'm wondering what your view is on how leaders, maybe one thing that leaders can do to stay truly connected from a distance. Yeah, we. I truly believe, and I know you do too, we have got to begin meetings with, with some sort of connection question and levity. We just have to. And I get so much pushback. We're like, I've got an agenda with items to accomplish. I was like, yes, but you have a team who might not feel very connected and it's your job to make sure that they're a cohesive team. So how do you do that? If you're doing it remotely, you got to build in time for some meaningful connection. And, 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 and different leaders do it differently. Like one of the leaders who is pretty uncomfortable with sharing he um, began by saying, I'm going to, the first five minutes when people are coming in, I'm going to share my favorite song. And then in the chat, I want you to say, and, and I'll pick somebody and next week. I want you to put your favorite song and that's going to be what we listen to for the first five minutes while people come into the call. This person has 300 people on the Zoom call. So it's a lot. So he can't just go around to 300 people and say, what's your favorite Thanksgiving meal? And I recognize also that was a very American example <laughs> for the Canadian. Um, and, and I thought that was really clever too, because then the conversation is in the chat, like, oh my gosh, I love that song. I'm going to share, you know, more of my favorite music with you because we, but, but there, there are clever ways that you can add a personal element into your Zoom calls. I also believe, as I know you do too, is you got to use the breakout groups. I mean, the way you really get to know each other is, and that's what I do. I teach online, one of my MBA classes. And so when you're lecturing, you don't lecture the entire time. No way. You put them in break. You, you know, you might say for 15 minutes today, I'm going to talk about presentation skills and blah, 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 blah. And now we're going to go into breakout groups. And I want you to discuss the things that, you know, the professors that you've had, no names, please, that have put you to sleep and why. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And then you come back to the big group, right? And you share that. But you got to create these meaningful connections with people. We just, especially in this virtual environment, we don't want to be talked at the whole time. That's not connection. Connection requires reciprocity, give and take, learning together. Well put. So how can people get their hands on your book, Michelle? Yes, um, please contact me. I would love to hear your thoughts on connection. And you can do that by going to my website, www.michelle with two L's, K 
for my maiden name and then Johnston. So michellekjohnston.com. And there's a, there's a way to contact me and let me know, what do you think about connection? What is connection to you? What makes connection? What breaks connection? So right now, Laura, I'm collecting data for my second book. And my second book is going to be titled Connection Drives Results. And it's going to be an action plan for how to create a culture of connection to drive results. I cannot wait for that book, Michelle. Beautiful. I love that you have another book in the works. And we will share this in the show notes and the e-newsletter I put out, the blog. Uh, We'll share it as much as we can, Michelle. Oh, Laura, thank you so much. And thank you all for putting up with my American um, examples. I hope to, I hope that there's a lot of Canadian listeners. I love Canada. And I, I really appreciate any of your feedback. Um, everybody who's tuning in, who just, you know, realizes, like Laura said, we're all humans and we want to figure this out. And this is a new era of how we can show up the best version of ourselves and, and create positive work environments, right? That we actually want to go to work every day, whether it's virtually or in person. So Laura, I just want to give you a shout out. Thank you for creating the space and advocating. You're so welcome. And yeah, about half of my listeners are in the US and half are in Canada. And I love both countries very much. Uh, and I do want to come to New Orleans, by the way. It's on my bucket list. So maybe Mardi Gras, maybe another time. But one, one time I want to come there in the near future, Michelle. Please do. Thank you so much again. No problem. I just wanted to ask, and I ask all my guests this very quick question. Is there one book and one podcast that's really inspired you lately that you'd want to recommend to our listeners? Yeah, the book that really changed my life was Brene Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection. That will forever be um, my favorite and most influential. And then the podcast that I really enjoyed um, is The Mentor Project with Ruth Godian. And she's just doing great, great work. She wrote a book called The Success Factor, and she's in my tribe and 100 coaches. And, and she really looks at the top, top Olympians and Nobel Peace Prize winners and, and how mentoring can really help all of us um, be the very best. Oh, I can't wait to get my hands on this. You should see my pile of books. <laughs> you can see some of them behind me. Yours will be on that shelf behind me. But yeah, it keeps growing. And... My final question, Michelle, is if you could have one wish for a better world when it comes to leadership, what would that be? Assuming positive intent. And, and this is something that, that again, I, I, I said, as humans, we, we assume the worst. It's tough. And, and we really have to go into interactions intending to assume positive intent. And that makes all the difference in the world. Just assume positive intent. Beautiful. Well put. Thank you for all you're doing in the world, Michelle. You're making a real impact. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you, listeners. Take care. Yeah, stay well. Until next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Where Work Meets Life. If you found this content valuable, please rate and review the episode and share with others who may benefit. Visit me on my website at drlaura.live and sign up for my monthly e-newsletter full of tips and resources. I'm also a passionate keynote speaker and would be delighted to speak with you on your speaking needs. Stay well.